Amen. You may be seated. So today is our last sermon uh, in the little series we've called Pilgrim Songs, working our way through the 15 songs of ascent, songs for going up in the book of Psalms. The last two are Psalms 133 and 134. You can find those on page 14 in your bulletin. The first, Psalm 133, is a psalm of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Psalm 134, come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we ask you to bless our hearing by the Spirit. In Jesus' good name, amen. So one of the things that I really love is pastoring people who make me think. And recently I had a conversation with a young man about something called core values. The idea is this, every organization, this includes every church, has a culture. What do do I mean by that? What is a culture? Well, one definition of an organization's culture is it's the system of shared beliefs and values that that guides the behavior of its members. Think about it for a second. It's the system of shared beliefs and values that guides the behavior of its members. So if you don't have any shared beliefs or shared values, you, you don't have a culture. And if you have a lot of shared beliefs and values, but they don't actually change the way you live at all, then you also don't have a culture. But this is a culture. Shared beliefs and values that guide the behavior of the people in this group. And this young man was pointing out to me that a culture develops at two levels in an organization, a church. One is at the level of observable culture. It's the stuff you see and hear. It's the stories that you hear when you walk into a group. People are telling stories, and it tells you kind of what has... What has been important to us here? The stuff we're still telling stories about. There are heroes. Certain people kind of get spotlighted in an organization because they're pursuing the stuff that matters. There are rituals that kind of rehearse together the stuff that we believe really matters. And there are symbols, you know, for Christians, the cross, the bread and wine. There are symbols that show what's most important to us. That's all the observable culture. The stories, the heroes, the rituals, the symbols. But underneath all of that, obviously, are these core values. The deep beliefs, convictions that influence the behavior, that make the rest of it happen. These core beliefs, these core values, this is like, this is the stuff we exist for. This is what we're about. This is what to us is truly worthwhile, truly valuable. We want to build everything else around these things. There's your core values. Well, I imagine when you think about it that you would say that Trinity Church, this thing you're sitting in this afternoon, and ancient Israel, whose songs we've been exploring, these are two very different organizations. 
Very different organizations. Trinity Church versus, you know, the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem three times a year back in ancient Israel. Very different groups. You would expect very different cultures. But because both those ancient Israelites and we here today, we are actually all part of something that is called the kingdom of God. And so there are surprising similarities, even at the level of observable culture. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about. We're still singing their songs. That's observable culture. But underneath the observable culture, there is a really remarkable similarity in the core values. What the ancient Israelites would have said matters most, and what we still today say matters most, there's a lot of overlap because we're all part of the same kingdom of God. And these last two songs were done with the, were done with the journey. These are the last two songs they would sing on their triannual journey, these three feast occasions when they would all go up to Jerusalem to party together. These last two songs are really core value songs. Both of them, you don't notice it in the English translation, but both of them in Hebrew begin with the word hene, which means look, pay attention to this. These right here are the things that are worth traveling for. These are worth a pilgrimage. These are worth living for. And these two Psalms talk about who we are as God's people and what we do in God's house. Let's look at these core values. Psalm 133, I have called, this is us. Look, how good and pleasant it is. Shevet achim gam yachad. When brethren, when brothers dwell together. Now we got to get real about this. I, I think sometimes about these pilgrimages. There were three, and I, I sometimes think about the second one. It was called the Feast of Weeks. Now you got to understand, we had a pilgrimage less than two months ago at the beginning of harvest. Now, 50 days later, we're supposed to go back to Jerusalem. We've just finished the harvest, but we don't have our grain in the barns. We don't have our wine in the vats. And so we're going back to Jerusalem, and it's just really kind of a lot to ask us to do this twice in two months in the kind of middle of harvest chaos. And so you get out on the road, and here they all come again, right? You know, there's old Zeke who lives down the road with his vegetable breath and his bizarre political views. You have to listen to all the way to Jerusalem. I mean, the guy's just got bizarre views. And there's Jerusha, you know, that young woman from the next village, and she's such a twit. She's just all about her looks and all about her clothes, and the only thing she loves more than gossiping about her own children is gossiping about other people's children. You kind of just wish she would stay home. And you make your way towards Jerusalem, and there's more and more and more and more of these people, you know? And some of them are, are nice enough, you know, old friends, good to see you again, two months later. But you're making your way, and there's just a lot of people that are just kind of annoying, and nobody's getting much sleep because we're all, you know, sleeping on the roadside, and there's not a lot of food, and we're all hangry, and we're going back to Jerusalem. And then, you know, the crazy thing is you get to Jerusalem, and this is just a mess. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming into a city that's not built for that kind of a mob, there are no grocery stores. There are no restaurants. You can't find a decent cup of coffee because all of the Issacharites drank it all already. I mean, it's just frustrating. You're elbowing your way through the streets. Your kids are tired and cranky. There are, there are, there are sometimes not even, there's not even any room in the inns. And there's no running water. There's no flush commodes. There is no electricity. They don't even have Wi-Fi. And you just want to go home and you want to just store your grain and vat your wine and just, you know, oy vey. And David, th this psalm says, look, look around at this messy throng of people. And it prompts us to see this throng through the eyes of David. 
It's David's song. David was that shepherd king who loved God's flock. And his first contribution in this songbook, you may remember, was that he was glad when they said to him, let's go up to the house of the Lord with these tribes of Israel. And David, in this song, he looks around at this mob of people who haven't bathed in a week. There's just too many of them to, for any kind of comfort, and many of them are quite annoying. And he says, look how good this is. Look how beautiful this is. Isn't this cool? He sees who these people are. He says they're brothers, Achim, they're brothers. And what's even better, brothers can be a real problem, as you know from Israel's history. You go back to the early days of these 12 tribes. Did they get along? Not so much. He says they are dwelling together. They are dwelling together. That is not the most obvious thing you'd expect from Israel's story. Now, I want you to notice what this song is doing. This song is not explaining something theoretical. This song is not narrating anything. It is not exhorting us to do anything. It is inviting us just to savor something. Just enjoy this. Just kind of take it in and just feel how wonderful this is. These brothers dwelling together. There are some things in life that we are not going to invest in until we taste and see. And David, in this song, and the pilgrims are singing it, he just says, I want you to just savor how delightful, how satisfying, how pleasing a thing it is when God's people live together, they dwell together, they share life as brothers. Now, you already have the whole point of the song in verse 1. David could stop there, and we could just sing Amen. Behold, look how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together. But as we kind of prepare to sing our amen, David actually keeps singing. And he kind of keeps singing as if he's lost in thought, and he's trying to figure out how to properly describe what we have just seen. He said, look around at this mob. I just want you to see all these people, some you like, some you don't, but like they're all here, and I just want you to look around and see how good and beautiful this is. And then he's like, you know, it's like, it's like... And he's trying to think of how to describe it. And this is actually good, because if, if we stopped at verse 1... Some of you are feeling this right now, I suspect, because you know where I'm going with this a little bit. If we stopped at verse 1, look how good and pleasant this is, and we just stopped there, it might be hard for us to square what David has just said, look how good and pleasant, with what we are actually seeing. You know, it's kind of like somebody saying, behold, how good and tasty a thing it is when a steak is cooked to perfection. You're like, amen. But then there's this thing on my plate. And that's often how it is. But look, what a glorious, pleasing thing it is when Christians dwell together in unity. And you're like, yes, except look at what's in front of me. And if David just gave us verse 1, it would be a little hard maybe to say, yeah, that applies to what this mob around me. But as David goes on to say what Israel's life together as brothers is like, this will enable us to turn back to the particulars of this pilgrim throng around us and see that David has nailed it exactly in verse 1. We will really feel and savor what he feels and savors. And the first thing he says is, you look at this group, this mob coming into Jerusalem, this is like the anointing of Israel's first high priest. Now, i got to say, that is not the most obvious analogy to me at all. I want you to imagine that scene where Aaron, the first bro Moses' brother, he was anointed as the first high priest in Israel. I want you to imagine the scene and try to figure out why David would say, that's what this is like. So there was this moment after the tabernacle was built, really beautiful place, 
and all the furniture was set up, and Aaron had these particular garments, this beautiful blue robe, and, you know, the breastplate, the ephod, and the breastplate, and he had the crown with the holy to the Lord across the top, and he just, you know, he was, he was looking good that day, and after they got him all dressed, he's about to receive what is called the anointing. This is God saying, now, now, you're, now you're in action, and the way this happens is Moses gets, I guess, probably a picture of really expensive, aromatic, beautiful, costly oil, and he just starts pouring it over Aaron's head. And it's pouring down over the crown, and it's dripping down his side locks, and it's pouring down onto the top of his robe. And I want you to, to, to just think about the fact that that visual of something pouring down over Aaron's head, that is God's idea. That visual is God's idea. And what is God trying to say and show in that visual. God is saying to Aaron, and everyone around is free to listen in and watch. God is saying to Aaron, Aaron, I, the God of Israel, the God of all the earth, I want you, man. I, I command you. I authorize you, Aaron, to stand here in the center of these tribes, right? Because they're all, their tents are all pitched in formation around the tabernacle. I want you, Aaron, to stand here in my presence in the middle of all these tribes, and I want you through these various sacrifices and offerings I've just been telling you about, I want you to make atonement for sin. I want you to shed blood so that the sin of these people is taken away, and I want, through that, for my blessing to pour out to them I want to bless them, Aaron. And so I am commanding and authorizing you as I pour this oil over your head. This is a sign. I am making this so that you will be the one who makes atonement so my blessing can go forth to these people because I am determined to bless them. And so what is happening is as the beauty and the fragrance of that oil is running down Aaron's head, what we are seeing is the beauty and we are smelling the fragrance of God's determined grace visibly, tangibly, aromatically pouring down Aaron's side locks, spilling down over the collar of his robe. That's what it's like when God gathers his people in Jerusalem. Here's the first core value, the first deep belief in this psalm. Our life together is a spectacular sign of God's grace. Just like Aaron's anointing was a spectacular sign, God is determined to be gracious to this people. When we dwell together as brothers, that is likewise a spectacular sign. God's grace is moving. God's commanding blessings here. God is at work. As you look at the mess, see, I'm a little twitchy about this kind of thing. Somebody pours oil over my head. All I'm thinking about is the next two weeks of washing. Whether you're looking at the mess on Aaron's collar or the mess of this pilgrim mob in Jerusalem, the point of this spectacle is that this is from God. This is from God who wants his people to be with him, near him, and he wants his people to be with each other. That anointing of Aaron says God wants these tribes to be near him and near one another, and when they gather in Jerusalem on these pilgrimage, David says, anytime you see God's people dwelling together, that is a sign. God's grace is at work. He wants his people to be near him, and as they're near him, they're near each other. It is his mercy that makes this possible. 
It is his goodness that makes this possible. It is the grace of God pouring down from his throne in Jerusalem out to the far-flung tribes of Israel wherever they are, just like in Aaron's anointing, grace just pouring down from God and spreading out. They're both signs of the same grace. What you saw that day as Aaron was anointed, God drawing his people near around him, it's the same thing you see in the pilgrimages anytime God's people are dwelling together. And so they're singing as they get very close now to Jerusalem. They're singing, they're a long way from Sinai where Aaron was anointed. And yet God's grace is still, all these centuries later, it is still pouring down, pouring down, spilling out through the whole land of Israel over many generations of his people. God's grace is still pouring down. And you know that's still true here today, brothers and sisters. This togetherness in this room this afternoon, as brothers and sisters, this is a sign of actively flowing grace. Now, I know you guys, this is also a mess, right? How many of you had a mess on your way to church today? It's a mess, and it is a sign of God's actively flowing grace. God is doing this. This is a sign that his grace is flowing, and he is gathering people to himself and to each other. God has removed the barrier of sin between you and him, between me and him, to a much greater high priest than Aaron. His name is Jesus. And in removing the sin barrier, God has called us together here today as an expression, visible expression of it. God has called us together into one home under one Father King because we have peace with God. We can, yes, we can, put away all of the various selfishnesses and hostilities that we so easily set up against each other because God has broken those down through Jesus. God has put an end to warfare between us and him and between us and each other, and we can live together in peace because God. And any time we are dwelling together, we are sharing life together, that is a sign that that grace is working. And it's in a very similar way like the water that flows down from Mount Hermon. Very similar metaphor, slightly different emphasis, because Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. It's way up north near Syria, and it is always snow-capped. And I'm not going to get into the details of exactly what kind of water cycle we're talking about, whether or not those snow that snow-capped peak kind of runs down in water into the rivers of Israel and then eventually makes its way all the way south to Zion, uh, the, city, the, the mountain that Jerusalem sits on, or whether it's the heavy dew that is on Hermon that eventually makes its way south to the more dry region where Jerusalem is, it doesn't really matter. The point is this, the point of the song is that again, when you see God's people dwelling together, what you are seeing is life that is being watered from above. It is from outside of Zion coming in from God, who dwells in the highest, the, the, the highest heavens cannot contain him. And his grace and his life flow down, and that's why we are able to live together. And despite the messiness of life together, the water picture tells us this is refreshing. It isn't just a sign of grace, it is like water refreshing in desert places. When God's people are dwelling together, God is refreshing us in that, and he's refreshing us through that. Now, having sung that song, you look back at your fellow pilgrims. 
So I want you guys just to look around for a sec here. This is like Aaron's, Aaron's beard dripping with oil. This is like the, the dew of Hermon coming down to Zion. You look around now at the mess again. You look at the mob. If that is, in fact, what God is doing in our midst, brothers and sisters, that this thing that we are experiencing even now is God manifesting his grace as he did on, in anointing Aaron. If what's actually happening in our midst is God is watering life, that's how this is possible. Then we can look back at the particulars of the mob around us and ask this question. If that's what God is doing, and he is, what should we be doing? If, in fact, it is true, as verse 3 of that Psalm 133 tells us, that God commands his blessing, whether anointing Aaron, whether watering Zion from Mount Hermon, whether in a pilgrimage where there's people who are gathered together in Jerusalem, God commands blessing here. He commands the blessing of life here. If that's what God is doing in the midst of our together dwelling, then what should we be doing? How are we then building the observable culture of together dwelling? How are we at Trinity telling the stories of what God has done and what God is doing in our midst? We need to be telling those stories. That's the observable culture of together dwelling. Who are the heroes at Trinity of fellowship building? We've got heroes here. There are people in this church who are doing this. I could name their names, so could you. How can we spotlight the people who are serving, the people who are taking initiative, the people who are reaching out, the people who are showing hospitality, the people who are training up the next generation, who are building the observable culture of what God is, is in fact, doing by his grace, as surely as he anointed Aaron? What rituals throughout the year allow us to weep together, allow us to celebrate together, Allow us to learn together. Allow us to exhort one another. Do you guys show up for those things as we try to have those rituals together to enact what God is in fact doing among us? What are the symbols of Christian love in our gatherings? How are we making observable the grace that we know is actively flowing among us? just like it flowed down Aaron's beard, just like it flows from Mount Hermon down to Mount Zion. That grace is flowing every time God's people are dwelling together. How do we build the observable culture of that? It's a very important question. And what we'll find as we try to do that, you know this so well, as you're trying, you know God is working. This is a sign of, a spectacular sign of God's grace. What's going on is as people are together, you know as you try to start building that observable culture of, to reflect what God is doing, you are, we are certainly going to find we cannot do that without his grace. <laughs> if God's not watering, we're going to have a problem. If God is not blessing and commanding his blessing, we're going to have a problem. Because it's all fine to talk about dwelling together until you bump into each other's idols, you bump into each other's treasures, you bump into each other's wounds, you bump into each other's insecurities, you bump into each other's apathy, you bump into each other's pride, and then what happens? Well, walls go up, weapons can bristle, it's not easy. It is only because grace is flowing from above, from Mount Hermon. 
It is only because grace is flowing that we can love in ways the world cannot understand. We can love generously beyond what is required. We can love mercifully when it is totally undeserved. We can love impartially to, from the least to the greatest alike. We need God if this is going to happen. Which is why this last psalm, which is extremely short, I think it's the shortest, is so very crucial. So that's the first core value in, in, in Psalm 133. Our life together is a spectacular sign of God's grace, but we need His grace if it is going to happen in a way that brings glory and honor to our Lord. And that's why Psalm 134 reminds us this is what we do. This is who we are. This is us. This is what we do. The last psalm. The first one, behold, how good and pleasant. This psalm, come, bless the Lord. And this is the second core value of God's people. The first, our life together is a spectacular sign of God's grace. The second core value, the absolute center of our life together is and must be worship. Every other form of together dwelling. Look, some people want together dwelling. A lot of people don't want together dwelling. But the point is, God wants together dwelling. It's enormously hard work, but every other form of together dwelling ultimately builds and grows from this central activity of gathered worship. A people who worship together stay together. They can build together. We are, above all, as God's people, a worshiping people. It is because of our God that we are anything. How long do you think Trinity Church would last if there were no God? What would bind us together if it were not that we are joined together around the living and true God? He is the one who makes us a thing. You take God from our midst, we're just another mob. You might even say that it's not even so much that our together dwelling flows from worship. That is true. You know, you worship together, it allows you to have other kinds of dwelling together. We can go way beyond the walls of what we're doing here. But that is even maybe not the, the whole truth. It is true that out of worship flows our life together. It is also equally true that our life together flows to worship. That that is the high point. That that is the main thing we look forward to doing together. Because our life together is not just life together. It is actually all about worshiping together the God who gives us life. And what does this psalm say worship is? What is worship? This is one of the simplest, most beautiful liturgies in all of Scripture. Worship is very, very, very simply two things. Worship is number one in verses one and two. It's just bring your need to God because He's God. Bring your need to God because He's God. Bless the Lord, that is to say, speak forth his godness, speak forth just how great he is, speak forth how good he is, how? How does it tell you to do that? How do you bless the Lord? What's it say? By lifting up, by lifting up your hands. I, I, I've gotten some pushback about this over the years. You know, people don't want to lift their hands. Okay, fine, do your thing, I guess. What is it about lifting hands? What is this saying? You know what this is saying? The New Testament and Old Testament command us lift up hands. Why? Because this says one very simple thing. God, it's all from you. That's what this means. It's all from you. Some days my hands are totally empty. I am crying for help. It's all from you. 
Some days my hands are full. I'm bringing in sheaves of blessing. God has been so good. It's all from you. That's what this says. Bless God. Tell his godness. Tell his greatness and his goodness by lifting up your hands to the Lord. Bring your need to God because he is God. But worship is a second thing. Worship is be assured that God is God for you. Be assured that God is God for you. Lift up your hands in the holy place, yes, but verse 3, now may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. I just want you guys to think about this. This is the core of our dwelling together, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who brings forth the rain and the snow, who causes the sun to rise and set, who guides the galaxies, who guides the fish that swim in the deep, the God who holds our life breath. He is your God. It's actually a singular pronoun in verse 3. The Lord bless you singularly, individually. He is your keeper. He is your father king. And not anymore from an earthly ark in a mountain city, but now from the throne where his son sits with him by the power of his world-creating spirit, God loves you. He loves you by name. He loves to bless you. He is able to bless you. He will bless you. Cranky old John Calvin, who gets such a bad rap, says this about this verse. He says, since many are apt when they hear God spoken of as creator, maker of heaven and earth, right? They're apt when they hear that to conceive of God as standing at a distance from them and doubt their access to him. Because of that, the psalmist makes mention also of Zion. The Lord bless you from Zion, which was a symbol of God's nearness to his people. So they might be encouraged to approach him with the freedom and unrestrained confidence of persons who are invited to come to the bosom of a father. By looking to the heavens, then, they were to discover the power of God, maker of heaven and earth. By looking to Zion, his dwelling place, they were to recognize his fatherly love, unquote. So that we may boldly say, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body and further that he will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage, for he is able to do it, being almighty God, and he is willing to do it, being a faithful father. That is the grace that makes us a people. That is the heart of our worship as God's people. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. There is no value that is more core in Israel's history or in ours.
And so let us pray. Bless us, O Lord our God, for Jesus' sake. And make us a blessing to one another as we dwell together in your presence. In Jesus' good name, amen.